Well, hey, we're in a series, third week of this series called Portrait. <clears throat> Today, we're, each week you're in the series, we're looking at a, um, a key distortion of the gospel or of Christianity or of God, something that's been prevalent within kind of the world we live in. And then we're considering these weeks um, how Scripture, the story of God, gives us a clear picture of both who God is as well as who we're called to be as God's people. And so to introduce this morning's theme, I want to show you one of my favorite Farside cartoons ever. I used to collect these as a desk calendar uh, before iPhones and things. So go ahead and put this one up. In case you can't see down here, it says God at his computer. <clears throat> and um, this is like a, an old computer, if you haven't seen one of these. <laughs> so, And there's a guy up there with a piano. And of course, God's... There's so many problems with this cartoon, because <laughs> like God with the white beard and stuff. But we're not going to go there. God's hitting, um, getting ready to hit the smite button. And so... You're not laughing. Is that, is that not funny? I think it's hilarious. Um, but this is an image that's famous in our collective imaginations of kind of who God is, how God expresses himself, how God smites seemingly randomly and capriciously. Uh, the well-known atheist author Richard Dawkins said this, said in this way, and go ahead and put this quote up. The, and this is in your bulletins. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. You, you didn't think you were going to hear Richard Dawkins quoted in church, did you? Here you go. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I actually had to practice that one quite a few times. <laughs> um, thank you. And while I don't agree with Dawkins, like, conclusions, uh, Nora Larson's kind of facetious characterization of God. Their exaggerations make for, I think, more than just good reading and comic relief. Um, Such a negative view of God highlights that God has a a serious credibility problem within the world we live in, doesn't he? Um, I mean, you've seen those Allstate commercials with Dean Winter, like where he's mayhem. You've seen these? Or maybe you haven't. The people who are in church watching the CX game are watching this. But um, the guy in the black suit, you know, that causes mayhem. What's the legal term for disastrous events outside human control that the insurance industry uses, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, mayhem, acts of God. And while that terminology doesn't necessarily preclude God doing good things, the lack of a negative qualifier, destructive acts of God, I think suggests to us that when God acts, he wreaks havoc, whether that's because of incompetence, impatience, or just crazy wrath. Um, And that's, of course, a God nobody wants anything to do with, right, in their right mind. Like, how can a deity who's perfect and loving, be so violent and have such a temperamental side, right? And and why would I ever, in a million years, like we talk about spending in a coffee with God, want to spend an hour in silence, solitude, and intimacy with that God? Like, why? That is, like, ridiculous. And so that's the question we'll ponder this morning. What is God's problem? Um, Or better, like, how might we understand who God is in these moments when God expresses his anger, because it's there. It's in plain sight. You can't avoid it. We often try to. We try and whitewash it, pretending that those stories in which God gets angry just don't exist, or at least not like they do. Like, it's just Noah and the ark and some animals and some rainbows. Nobody died. That's what we tell our kids. And that's just not the truth. There's real violence in that story and others like it. And we can't pretend that they, they aren't offensive. They are to us, to others. So what does it mean for God to participate in or allow or even in some cases command violence? Um, or as he simply does with Moses, just get angry. God, 
God's wrath, his anger burned against Moses, like the leader of, of the Exodus. So are you with me? That's what we're going to try and ca- cackle in the next 20 minutes or so. And this is vital because it affects like how we pursue or avoid God. You know, some of us are pursuing God. Some of us are just avoiding God. It influences how we experience grace, receive healing, extend God's love to those who desperately need it or who don't, how we don't extend that. So it impacts our work, our relationships, our faith. Every dimension of life is impacted by this issue, okay? And to get to the issue of God's anger and God's wrath, I want to use this story of Moses we read, which happens just after the burning bush. And of course, this is not the most graphic story you've ever read in the Bible. Uh, It probably doesn't even present some of the problems I'm suggesting are there to us about the anger and wrath of God. But my hope is, because it's so familiar and it's such a a beautiful narrative, that we can apply some of the lessons you can take out of this story uh, to every difficult text we encounter, okay? So there are some more difficult ones. I'm just going to name that, that we're not talking about this morning. But how does Moses' encounter with God and God's anger toward Moses there inform the rest of the story, so to speak, okay? And we're going to look at that under these three headings that are in your bulletin. We're going to look at the false dichotomy that's been created within God's character. We're going to look at the meaning behind the slowness of God's anger. And then we'll look at the necessity, really briefly, of reading the rest of the story, okay? False dichotomy of, with, that's been created within God's character, meaning behind the slowness of God's anger, and the necessity of reading the rest of the story, okay? So first, the false dichotomy that's been created within God's character. And actually, you have to fast forward in Exodus to Exodus 34, after the golden calf incident, to really get a picture of this, uh, where God says, I'm slow to anger and, and bounding in steadfast love. We'll get to that in a moment. But one solution that a lot of people, and I myself have done this, come to when they encounter the violence, anger, and wrath of God, as Dawkins and many others like him have done, is just dismiss that God. Like as Dawkins has famously said one place, God's an ogre, get rid of him. Like literally, he says, impeach God. He's not worthy of being in office. And that's a very popular word these days. But keep Jesus. In fact, uh, Dawkins has a movement called Atheists for Jesus. Like, he loves Jesus, but we, could do, we do well to get rid of the God of the Old Testament. And that, of course, has a lot of problems with it, which is not the least of which is the, the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. Like, he didn't have a New Testament, <laughs> if you know your testaments. So the Old Testament literally was his sacred text, that was literally the document he would carry in his... Well, he wouldn't carry it around because it was on scrolls, but, but the Bible, the Old Testament, literally this document which we see over and over again, this wrathful, angry God figure, that's Jesus' sacred text. And, he, and he, what's key there is he valued the Old Testament throughout his life, his teaching, his ministry, when he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, quotes Deuteronomy three times to the devil. When he's on the cross, he's quoting the Psalms. He, he had internalized that those scriptures so much so that they were part of his ministry. And, and what's particularly relevant with that is it's how Jesus used, it's what Jesus used actually to describe God, the Old Testament. He doesn't come up with new ideas really to describe God. When he talks about God as a, as a um, vineyard owner, that's Old Testament language. When he reveals himself as Messiah, that's Old Testament language. So for example, in response to this question, which Jesus was asked by a lawyer, which command is the greatest commandment? Jesus mentions two from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. He took those two commandments from the Old Testament down and made them one commandment, and he said the thing that we all know as Christ followers and believe in, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than that. That's just Old Testament. 
<laughs> and that's straight up law. And so while Christians, unfortunately, have a tendency to focus on other issues like the age of the earth, speaking in tongues, anger of God, Jesus knew the primary concern that he had and what we should have was that God expresses himself in and as love. That was the number one thing to Jesus, and he wanted to get that across. God is a God of love, which is how God reveals himself to Moses right there in Exodus 34. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining that love to thousands of generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebelliousness, and sin. So notice, it doesn't say that God doesn't get angry. Never says that. Just that he's slow to anger. We're going to get to that in a moment. But the key is here, uh, coupled with God's slow anger is a steadfast and enduring love. And that's a hugely, hugely, hugely significant concept within the Old Testament. In Hebrew, that's the word hesed. And that's a word that can, occurs in the Old Testament some 251 times. And the vast majority of those are talking about God. 179 of those occurrences are just talking about God. So it's a way that God describes himself. And in that way, it's the best kind of love you can imagine inside of a relationship. It's the love of a devoted parent for their children, from infancy to adulthood and then beyond. It's the love of a committed spouse to his or her partner over decades of marriage. It's a relational love. So it's not a word used lightly in relationship. You don't tell your, your new girlfriend or boyfriend, Hesed, I Hesed you. Actually, try that. See how that goes. But it's, it's a word that's used of like a really covenanted relationship. And what's more, um, God's not only loving in that way, but his hesed is abundant. It's something that uh, he describes, um, I'm slow to anger, and then abounding in steadfast love to thousands of generations. And the key there is that thousands of generations, as I do the math, is about 30,000 years. So that's that's incredible when you think about it. Angry for a, a couple generations, loving for thousands. They don't even, if you put them on scales, they aren't even close. Greg Boyd, who, uh, and so that's important. So Greg Boyd, who's a pastor at Woodland Hills Church in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, recently preached a sermon on this, this theme. And uh, he, the theme, the title of the sermon is, Is God Angry? And it's about an hour-long sermon that I watched this week. I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but I, I did pull a clip out of it that I found helpful in this notion of the hesed love of God, the abundant love of God. So let's watch. It's about a minute, so let's watch him. You can turn it off. It goes on for like an hour. But from eternity to eternity, God is perfect, unwavering, unfathomable, incomprehensible, uncompromising, unqualifiable, other-oriented, self-sacrificial, non-violent, enemy-embracing love. And you got everything God does is an expression of that, period. And so when I say I can believe in a God of love, a God like that, I can get behind, but... When God expresses anger and wrath, I'm out. When I do that, I'm actually not talking about God. I'm embracing a, a dualistic view of God. And I talked a bit about this last week, where good's on one side, evil's on the other side, all the love's on one side, sorry if you're on this side here, all the wrath's on the other side, all the light on one side, all the darkness on the other side. You see, when we do this, we're pitting two opposing forces against each other, and for some of us, equal, equal opposing forces. And... and and when we see that God operating in the darkness or expressing anger or allowing, commanding violence, we think, well, God can't be in that, behind that, near that. I can't comprehend that. It's incomprehensible. That's not the way we're wired to think. And so no more God. That's where we go. 
And it's actually been one of the taken-for-granted cliches of Western culture that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the law, letter, justice, retribution, vengeance, anger, flesh, and death. And the God of the New Testament, faith, spirit, forgiveness, grace, forbearance, love, and life. But the essence of Christianity, which is articulated by Paul, the Gospels, by Jesus, and the Old Testament, is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. In fact, I heard someone say, how do you reconcile the love, loving God of the Old Testament with the wrathful God of the New Testament? And you think I misspoke there, but God's love is talked about more often than not in the Old Testament, and, and hell is never mentioned in the Old Testament, but Jesus talks about hell more than anybody in the Bible. How do you reconcile these two gods? Well, you don't, because they're the same God. His love is, is the same love, his justice is the same justice, his forgiveness is the same forgiveness. It's just one God. That's why the Old Testament is part of the Christian canon. That's why we didn't just get rid of it when Jesus came and then rose and then died, or left the earth. He embraced it. It teaches us who God is. And so the question for us now is, then how, how do we bring these two together? When we read about this bad that's going on in the Bible, and, and we see God at work in those dark places, how do, we, how do we reconcile the tension in that? Might we look to Jesus to guide us in that path, I guess? I mean, he embraced God as Father, sought him for wisdom, understood him as pure and infinite love. Start there. As Boyd says later in that sermon, the beauty of your relationship with God, the passion of your relationship with God, and the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. You can't outrun your picture of God. So everything hangs on a resolving that God looks exactly like Jesus from beginning to end, down to his very essence. God looks as beautiful as he's revealed to be on the cross. That's who God is. So we've got to lock that in if we're going to be people of faith in this world in which we live. That's the first thing. We've created this dichotomy in God's character that just doesn't exist. Here's the second thing. We need to learn to understand the cause of God's anger. So this is the text we read from Exodus 3 and 4, which ends with Moses becoming angry with God. Now, interestingly, the word anger in Hebrew is this word that literally means nose. It's the word ap, really short little word. Perhaps because anger is thought to be focused in the face, like your face gets really angry. I mean, your body does, but your nose might turn red. So the Hebrew word for anger is nose. And that, that word appears 10 times in Exodus. Um, so, for example, right here in Exodus 14, or 414, God gets angry with Moses. And so a little context for that anger. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, Israel, as you heard, had been enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years in Egypt. And then Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt, has begun to undertake this draconian birth control measure for the Hebrews, uh, male infanticide. He's killing all the firstborn Hebrew males. I mean, talk about that for violence, right? And in the midst of that brutal oppression, the Israelites cry out to God, God save us. And the text tells us that God hears their groans, remembers his covenant with Abraham. This is Exodus 2, 24 and 25. And then he begins a process of rescuing Israel from their bondage by choosing a leader, Moses. And during that interaction we read, Moses offers a series of five objections to God. Why you shouldn't do this. And you probably heard this, it's kind of funny. Who am I? Who are you? They're not going to listen. I can't speak. Please pick someone else. I mean, like, I'm like, that's exactly what I would have done if someone put me in charge of rescuing a few million people from the greatest empire on earth, and you too. Nobody's going to sign up for that. And so how does God respond to Moses? Look at this. Notice he listens. There's four objections there in which God just listens, listens graciously, patiently, persistently. And then, after the fifth objection, he gets angry. 
And so there's a couple things we can note right there about God's anger that are really important to us. First, notice that God did not smite anyone. This is not Gary Larson. God might smite sometimes, but more often than not, God doesn't smite. So later in Exodus, chapter 32, this is the golden calf incident after which that revelation about God being abounding in steadfast love comes up. Um, You know, he wants to destroy Israel, like completely obliterate them, start over again. And, and you think Exodus 4 is bad. <laughs> Read 34 or 32 sometime. And so rather than, in this one, rather than offering this litany of reasons why, you know, Moses doesn't want to be in that anymore, he actually confronts God, Moses does, and says to God why he shouldn't destroy Israel. And do you remember what happens next? This is Exodus 32, 14. The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. And that's an interesting word, Relent. Because it can mean to change one's mind. And I mean, scholars get all bent out of shape about God changing God's mind. But it can also mean to feel compassion. And because of that compassion, to offer comfort. That's interesting. I mean, this is God the Spirit right there in the Old Testament in Exodus. The angry, wrathful God expressing compassion and comfort. This is the God that Jesus talks about later. It's the paraclete, the comforter. Triune, eternally triune. Not smiting, but experiencing compassion and showing mercy toward his people. So God doesn't smite in his anger. That just doesn't happen, at least not typically. Here's the second thing. God became angry because he wanted to deliver his people, and Moses didn't want to help, okay? So Israel is struggling under this enslavement, and Moses just doesn't want to get involved in that. It's too much. And that's important because God was not only mad that his people were enslaved, he's mad at slavery, but also because Moses doesn't seem to care that his people are in slavery. Are you seeing this? And so it's not a spite or smite, but God wants to awaken Moses to both the reality of of suffering in the world as well as invite him to be an agent in deliverance by participating in this plan for redemption. And, And the key there is that God's wrath is targeted at the things that someone with a concern for justice would ideally target. Oppression, violence, and injustice. You would hope that a judge would target injustice, right? And not just be indifferent, right? You'd hope. Um, And God's called a just judge. Uh, Becky Pippert, she wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, where she has this little part of a chapter on, on the anger of God. And she puts it this way. Think of how you or I might feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as you might toward a stranger, we, far from it, right? We're dead against whatever's destroying the ones we love. And she says, loving people who are addicts, if you've ever had an addict in your life, is a good example of this. And then she goes on to say, it's one of the most frustrating, infuriating experiences I have ever known. I was grieved, to be sure, I was grieved and sickened to see that wasted potential in those people. Uh, but I also felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them awake and say, can't you see... Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You were created for more than this, and you become less and less yourself every time I see you. I wasn't angry because I hated them. I was angry because I cared for them. I loved them. And if I hadn't loved them, I could have just easily walked away. But see, this is, and then she says this, love detests what destroys the beloved. That's important. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, and the sin that destroys us. And the fact is that anger and love are actually inseparably bound in human experience. And 
Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. Um, God does not, I don't condone, our church does not condone hate. And the final form of that, hate, is actually indifference, if you know anything about hate. And so if she goes on, she says, if I, a flawed, sinful person, can feel that much pain and anger over someone else's condition, how much more can a morally perfect God do the same? Who made them? And that's so important because in these contexts where we read about God's wrath, we have to understand it comes from his compassion, that God's anger is rooted in God's love. And, and that's a good thing. That's actually a good thing. Um, so that's the second observation from this text. And here's the last one, and then we'll conclude. Notice that it took God, as I already said, a really long time to get angry. Like he didn't get mad after the first, second, third, or even fourth objection that Moses offered. It's after the fifth one. And if you timeline that out, some, some Hebrew scholars have said this was a long encounter. Like Moses is sitting there staring at the burning bush for a really long time. Because if you know anything about bushes burning in the desert, they just go up in flames. And he's sitting there and watching this burn bush, or this bush burn. And so this encounter kind of went on for a while. And so it took God a long time to get angry with Moses. Um, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So slowness to anger in that way is as much part of God's character as his love is, is in some ways. And so God's like long-nosed, you could say, uh, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. And it, se- it seems to me, at least, one of our problems then with anger is that we just don't have good examples of it in our lives. Like slowness to anger just doesn't happen, Right? I mean, we get angry, mad. We get instantly mad. We, we come in rage if someone pulls in front of us in traffic or throws their dog poops on our lawn, not speaking from personal experience at all. Or someone eats the last of the mint chip ice cream. Again, not from personal experience. For many of us, anger is a daily occurrence, right? And it comes quickly and it comes easily and then we're just, we just burn out. But God is slow to anger. Not so much for us. You know, earlier this week, it's almost as if it was planned. I was out for a bike ride on Wednesday, um, and I was up in Greenwood, and I was going through an intersection, and it's a, it's a controlled intersection, semi-controlled, I guess, because there was stop signs on two sides, and then I get to go through. And as I'm going, as, literally as I'm going through, a garbage truck, like one of those waste management garbage trucks, blows the intersection and nearly hits me, and I'm freaked out. So I was planning on going straight, decided to turn left and follow him. Yeah. This is not going to end well. So I'm following him for a few blocks, and suddenly, because I had a friend who was killed on East Lake Avenue by a garbage truck one day, uh, years ago now. There's a, a ghost bike there. And so I'm a little bit like post-traumatic stress with garbage trucks. And um, anyway, I follow him for a few blocks, and suddenly he just slams on the brakes, and, uh, and I pull around the left side because he's on the right side. And then he has this big dumpster over him, and he starts to lower that and slams it to the ground, and I'm like, whoa, this is not, something's wrong. He gets out, and uh, I won't quote him, but he says, get away from my bleeping truck, or I'll bleeping kill you. Comes up, and he's a big guy. And all I wanted to do was talk to him and say, hey, I, I, did you see me? I could have been killed. And, uh, but I quickly realized I was in a bad spot. <laughs> I had already been injured once this summer, didn't want to get injured again, so I quickly moved on, and I went away from the incident deeply troubled, because that was not a redemptive moment in my week. And I was actually, I went through an alley to get away because <laughs> I was afraid. And then I was getting ready to call Waste Management, which is the company that runs these things. And, and I, because I'd taken the number of the truck down. But I decided to wait 
Because I, I knew, like, the fight-or-flight thing's happening, and there's adrenaline in my system. And I know myself well enough that if I wait, I typically change my mind, and I live with less regret later. Is that anybody else? Yeah. So, and I also knew I'd be preaching this sermon today. <laughs> so I began to consider, like, how that expression of anger by this garbage truck driver, and then my desire to respond in anger, uh, you know, is very typical. And then it, how, how it might have gone different or might still go different. And so I took the time on that bike ride, couple-hour bike ride, just to meditate on this scripture, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, 30,000 years. That includes me and this garbage truck driver and forgiving wickedness, rebelliousness, and sin. And I've been asking myself all week, who's this God in whose image I'm made that could forgive like that? And who's this God in whom, whose image this garbage truck driver, though he didn't seem to portray that image, was, is made? And, and man, and what might slow anger look like? Like if we, could do, if we could rewind the tape and do that one over, how could it look different? How could God express himself differently? It's difficult to get angry slowly is what I'm trying to say. Really hard. It takes patience, it takes grace, it takes compassion. That is God. That is who God is. And so as I waited and I meditated and I spent time with God in this situation this week, actually a similar compassion kind of began to well up inside me. So much so, now when I'm driving around, I see garbage trucks everywhere. <laughs> and I ask myself, is that him? Is that him? Well, no, different, different company, different number. I'm just waiting to see this guy. He might still want to kill me, but... Man, if we had an opportunity to do it over. And that's, I think, how God approaches a lot of things. If only you could see the bigger picture, which moves me to the final point here. So God's slow to anger. And we need to see that. Here's the last thing. We need to read the rest of the story. And I put here Exodus 4, 14b to 16. And that's actually in the story we didn't read where, you know, God's angry. And then he offers Aaron, who's Moses' brother, to walk with Moses and to work with Moses, and they do that together for many years, and they lead and deliver God's people. You know the story. And it's not a uniformly hopeful story. There's a lot of ups and downs. That whole golden calf thing is actually Aaron's deal. So, ooh. But the key is that in God's anger, Exodus 4.14, that's not the end of the story. Yet we key in on that, or God killing the Amalekites, or God whatever, that's as if that's the end of the story. And it's just clearly, it's not the end of the story. That story goes on. God's anger is never the end of the story. There's always more to the story. And that's something I spent time considering this week in the aftermath of my garbage, the great garbage truck driver incident. <laughs> like, what more in the story do I need to know about myself, about this man, about that situation, to understand that story better, to understand his anger and reaction toward me better? And, and quite frankly, there's a lot I can never know. I'll probably never see this guy again. And I'm still alive. I'm okay. And, and there's a lot I probably don't need to know, right? I've learned a ton, and that's enough. And it's that sort of awareness about God, if we can just back up a little bit and go, you know what, there's a lot I don't need to know, there's a lot I can't know, and, and life goes on, and I'm going on, and I can rest in God's love. That kind of awareness right now will free us so much from these moments where he gets locked in and cannot move on in faith. That if we can just see that God is committed to the restoration of the world, the story goes on, and, and hold that truth in front of us daily when we come to the story of God, especially troubling texts like this 
and slow down and, and ask God to reveal more of himself to us and be filled with God's compassion, which is true of who God is. And then in that posture of faith, come closer and closer and closer to the heart of God. If we can do that, there will be hope for the world, I believe. And so I want to invite the worship team up. Um, remind us of a few things I've talked about, and then invite us to respond with worship. Uh, so, you know, I talked about how God's anger is rooted in God's love. Maybe that's something that you're like, whoa, I don't know if I can get on board with that. Um, I've talked about God's anger being slow and, and, and his love being abundant. Um, maybe that's something you need to, like I did this week, sit with. And then I've invited us to spend time with that God, like at the very end here, especially for those of us, and I'm with you in this, for whom this is a major challenge and you just can't move on. Um, might we be reminded that we're not at the end of the story today. Whatever moment we're in in history, whatever moment we come to in the story of God, we're not at the end yet. And that God is making all things new, including our lives, our doubts, our unbelief, our world. So God's not finished yet. We're going to sing this song called Canvas and Clay, and there's a refrain in there that says, you're not finished with me yet. And might we just, in faith, bring our, our disappointments, our struggles, our doubts to God and say, God, we, you're not finished with me yet. You're not finished with us yet. You're not finished with the world yet. And allow God then to reveal more of himself to us, who is perfect, unmitigated love. That's what he wants to do this morning. Uh, we'll have a prayer team right over here by the cross, um, which seems appropriate. That's where God expresses his love to us most profoundly. So if this touches you in any way, I invite you to that space. Um, and if you have younger kids, uh, maybe you can sing this first part of the song, but if you have kids in first grade or down, just a reminder to go get them during these two songs. It's not typical. That's not what we've done in the past. But if you'll do that, that'll help us kind of move into this transition we're moving toward in November. So let me take a moment to pray. God, uh, it's hard when we come to the notion of anger and, and you. <laughs> uh, we don't like that. Um, we're conditioned to think of you as just uh, grace and truth and love. And, um, and so, God, we, just, we invite you now as we respond in worship to open our minds and our hearts to who you really are, to more of you. We need more of you in our lives, God. That's our desire. Um, meet us now in this space of worship um, as we respond to you. Pray, pray in Christ's name. Amen.